Welcome to another Sustainable Wine podcast with me, Toby Webb. And this podcast is a recording of a session we held on November 26, 2020, as part of the Future of Wine Forum run by sustainablewine.co.uk. And the conference was sponsored by British Standards Institution, Chateau Leoub, Concha Itoro, Diem and Control Union. In this session, we're talking about social issues in wine with a focus on Africa. And joining us for the session is Anna Chilton, uh, an expert on ESG and agriculture. Zachary Chieri, the Fairtrade Africa, Southern Africa Network representative. And Sue Daniels, winemaker from Marks & Spencer. In the conversation, we talk about how companies can look at labour issues and some of the success stories in tackling them, particularly during the COVID-19 crisis. Please enjoy the podcast. And if you'd like to find more, just look for Sustainable Wine on your podcast app. Thank you. Uh, Anna, let's start with you. Give us uh, 30, 45 seconds on yourself and and then we'll turn to to Sue and then Zachary. Sure, really nice to uh, nice, nice to be here. Thanks so much for, um, for, the, for the pre-introduction, um, Toby. Great session so far, really enjoying the day. So um, Anna Chilton, I am currently doing an executive MBA full-time uh, in sustainable business at the Business School of Lausanne. Um, I'm based in Lausanne until I recently quit my job. Uh, I was based in the UK and working for an international conglomerate covering many different agricultural commodities from tea, which it was actually the biggest tea producer in the world. So as um, the person in charge of sustainability, I was uh, looking after a whole range of different products like tea, avocados, even annual crops like wheat and soy in Brazil, and had exposure to um, lots of developing world countries, but also have been working in the wine industry on and off for about 15 years. I've been exposed to um, sustainability about 10 years ago when I was at the Border Chamber of Commerce. And I'm currently writing a book on sustainable wine. Toby's helping with that and also uh, co-writing it with uh, Martin Reyes, MW in the US. That's me. Thank you, Anna. Uh, Sue, some people may have missed you earlier. So just uh, briefly, if you could tell us, tell us who you are again. Sure, I'm Sue Daniels. I'm one of the winemaking t- buying team at Marks & Spencer's. Marks and Spencers is um, a premium retailer in the UK. We focus mainly on our own brands, which we brand as Marks and Spencer or M&S as it's commonly known. Um, and so our brand um, image is extremely important to us, <coughs> which is why something like sustainable issues are really, really key to our whole um, essence. We have done this right from the beginning. Marks and Spencers <coughs> was established in 1884. But uh, more recently, in 2007, we brought everything together under a strategy called Plan A, because there's no Plan B, and this put all our sustainable criteria into one place. Um, Now it's split into three things, which is planet, product, and people. So obviously people is one of the key cornerstones for us, um, and obviously something that we're very, very interested in trying to make sure everyone is dealt with ethically and fairly. Thank you, Sue. Uh, Zachary Kiari, thank you for joining us from Nairobi. Uh, tell us about yourself and the work you do. Uh, thank you, Tobias. Uh, my name is Zachary Kiari. I work with Fairtrade Africa, which is one of the producer organizations of Fairtrade International, the producer-facing side of Fairtrade International. I'm based in Cape Town, and I manage the Southern African region that includes South Africa, and the majority of the countries in the Southern African region. 
my background, I'm a standards expert. And I've been with Fairtrade for the last 13 years in various capacities in Africa. And as uh, recently as uh, two years ago, I was based in uh, Fairtrade International Born as a project manager on workers' rights and trade union relations. Thank you. Thank you, Zachary. So, Anna, let's start with you. You mentioned that you've worked in tea, and, and you and I have talked about the similarities between tea and wine in the past. Um, I mean, tea and other issues, of course, uh, are all relevant to, to social issues in wine. So, yeah, give us a bit of an overview of, uh, of your thoughts on how to tackle this, these, these difficult issues, and uh, then we'll, we'll hear from Sue after that. Oh. The first thing I want to say is that um, we, you know, having come from the wine industry many years, uh, working in Bordeaux, traders and retail, lots of uh, lots of different uh, different exposures in the industry, um, and then having been suddenly exposed to all of these other products, and specifically how sustainability plays out on the social side in developing countries like India and. Um, you couldn't really call Brazil. It's like a developed, developing country, in my view, um, and and also in different parts of Africa. What I can really say is that the wine industry is in a very advantageous position. It may not look that way to us when we're sitting inside of it, but actually taking a step out, I can promise you that the wine industry is in a very advantageous position when it comes to social at the moment. And that's the you know that's the way the big line is at the moment. And why is that? Well. There are various reasons, but I think one of the key reasons is that most of the world's vineyards are positioned in affluent areas and policies on human rights, child labor, bribery. I mean, most of the most of the winemaking countries around the world are actually part of the OECD. And um, those policies are taken for granted very often. So if you're in those affluent areas, you, it's very likely that you're not actually facing those big challenges that other industries are on a daily basis. The other part of it is that it's very rare that you see on, in the wine industry uh, an organization actually um, having large-scale communities like we did in, in avocados, for instance, in Kenya, very large-scale communities that live on the, on the actual land of the, of the employer and there's schools that are provided, there are hospitals that are provided, there are all sorts of clinics and programs. I mean, massive, large-scale social programs to look after the people, to promote wellness and health. And, and that just doesn't really take place as much in the wine industry. It's very, it's quite rare. So that is, that is a big part of it. And I think that the other part of it is that the wine industry has done such a great job promoting itself for many generations. So we have, we have to be very grateful, I think, to those that came before us because they did a fantastic job of promoting what is now a very nice image of the wine industry. If you speak to any normal sort of homo sapien out there who's not in the wine industry, their image of wine is vineyards, a lovely wine producer. On top of that, we know by name, there are some wine producers that are actually celebrities. 
and people know about them. Like I lived in France for a long time, you know, Michel Roland is a, is a household name. How many tea producers or avocado producers have you heard of? Very few. So the wine industry is very good at promoting its image, promoting itself, and people are willing to listen because it's been good at that for a long time. So we've inherited a very positive image, and that may be one of the reasons why the NGOs haven't been looking as keenly and as deeply at the wine industry and what it's been doing as it has in other commodities. So for instance, in tea um, in India, for instance, this is a country that's highly unionized and uh, the government does have very high expectations of what a producer does on the land. Everything from building houses or standards for the kind of houses that people live in, the kind of schools that their children go to, it's often fifth, fourth, even, you know, I don't know how many centuries, but many, many generations of workers that have been looked after by the company. And the many things can go wrong in those kinds of conditions that, that just doesn't touch the wine industry. But I say this with caution because we have inherited this great image. We are in an advantageous position when it comes to social, or we are in affluent areas and many structures are already in place uh, by the governments who are doing uh, who are doing a lot to promote human rights in those countries. But we have recently seen more and more cases of human rights violations in the wine industry. And what a shame it would be to squander our inheritance in one generation where we, we, we've inherited this great image and now we might be facing something else, specifically in an, in an environment where everyone has a mobile phone. So your workers have a mobile phone, especially in, in the areas where vineyards exist. And every potential worker is a PR agent. So that's something we have to be aware of. And we, we have to be very conscious about how we are starting to treat people in, in our vineyards and being aware of some of the global standards which, uh, which are very much on the, um, on the agenda for a lot of other commodities on, on a daily basis, such as child labor, I've already mentioned those, uh, some bribery laws. There are many policies that can be put in place. And we've talked today about <clears throat> how it would be great to have a sustainability, a global sustainability standard. Well, that would actually be not so hard to do for social. I think it would be much harder, and Toby, you and I have discussed this at length, it would be very hard to do for environmental just because of the local, um, the local climates and, and everything from microclimates to macroclimates that can affect the kinds of standards that you can impose in, you know, on environmental issues. But for social, there are some, some, some big uh, some some big policies and some big standards that we can enforce across the whole industry and we could definitely start from that. But aside from looking at the challenges, and we spoke this morning a lot about the risks that social proposes, and I agree that actually social risks are extremely important to buyers, they're extremely important for the value chain, they are important for producers too. They are particularly important because they are highly relatable. So let, we talked this morning about circularity of regenerative agriculture. And Anne was saying, I think, you know, consumers just don't understand those words. It's not relatable, but social is very relatable. Child labor, very relatable. Uh, discrimination, very relatable. Uh, gender issues, very relatable for a lot of people. Modern slavery, extremely relatable. People can visualize, they can conceptualize that very quickly. So this is a high risk, but it's also a really big opportunity for those companies that that do this right, 
And if they can embed that into their culture, that's that's even better. I just want to say that something that we don't often talk about, which is <clears throat> just how much the environmental side is integrated with social. So, for instance, we all heard in 2018 what was going on with water in South Africa it was a disaster. The wine industry kind of got lucky there because as part of agriculture, uh, the government didn't impose any any very strict regulations for not not giving access to wineries because it's part of agriculture and the agricultural industry had to continue in South Africa. But had it gone on even further, I think it wouldn't have taken long for the wine industry to have had higher regulation about water use because that water needs to be attributed to the people who live on the land. And then there are other ways in which environmental social are connected, such as sanitation, for instance, and the quality of water really impacts the community as well. Um, the other thing I want to say, and this is a big point in, again, another uh, agricultural commodities, and that is the community assessment. So uh, at the winery level, uh, there we can, we can conceive that that is a community that works for the winery. But there's also a responsibility on part of producers to look after the broader community and this is definitely the case in other agricultural commodities where, like, for instance, in our um, uh, macadamia plantations, we used to supply the infrastructure and the maintenance of water for the local community around uh, the plantation. And that's, that's, quite a, that's quite a lot of work that goes into that. It often doesn't, doesn't relate to the wine industry, but let's just start thinking and future-proofing. Is it possible that in those areas where water is, is, is a big issue, like in California and Israel and uh, in South Africa, of course, it, do we need to start thinking about how we need to start looking after the community, making sure that we are future-proofing our business by collaborating with the community, looking at what's necessary, for, how can we help, are those, are those conversations happening? And just an idea that I had today where we spoke about this global standard, it will take some time, I think, to, to, to implement that. And I agree with Sue very much that it would be much faster and much better if, if many people were collaborating on this and it was done as a collaborative effort. But I think before we get there, before we get to this global standard, and I hope I hope that it will happen, and I believe that it would be great for the industry. There are some things that we can that the, the wineries can or organisations can already do on the social side to mitigate risks, but also to show themselves up in a positive light. And that is already to start communicating about their social policies and what they are doing on social. I think that's a really great first step. Maybe the global standard doesn't exist yet. We don't have the OIV to tell us yet exactly what you know they expect for the whole wine industry as a whole. But you can proactively already start drawing up some of those policies, communicating about them actively, embedding them into your social media programs and, and communication programs and sustainability reports and some great initiatives like Plan A, for instance. And how do you find those policies? Well, a really great framework being mentioned today the SDGs, there are 17 of them, Sustainable Development Goals by the UN. Of the 17, 10 are social, and they actually have goals attributed to them. So just looking at beyond the title of the SDG, you can also look into the goals attributed to them and start embedding those goals, looking at how they are related to those policies that you have in your organization and those goals that you're putting in your organization, just so that you can make sure that you are covering uh, all of the aspects that are relevant for social. So that's that's what I wanted to start with. Thanks very much, Anna. Um, lots to think about there. Very interesting. 
Um, Sue, let me turn to you. Um, we touched on some of this earlier, but um, you know, now we have a bit more time to go into it. Just really interested to know what the sort of processes are uh, that you use in M&S to try and manage some of these risks as a, a leading retailer who's really led the UK in, in, on these issues and others. Sue? Yeah, well, I mean, as we talked earlier, we, we have a very um, strong sustainable strategy, which is continually evolving. Um, and this covers all of our operations, whether it be um, our home care, our home side or clothing or foods. Talking specifically about wine, um, what we would do is when we're taking on a new winery, they need to be signed up to SEDEX. Um, for those of you who don't know what SEDEX is, it's, a, it's an exchange platform for um, your um, ethical standards. You complete a desktop audit and if necessary, you'll, we'll ask for you to have a um, physical audit. And there are a number of different sorts of um, physical audit. You can have Smeter is the one that is quite often used. We will also then visit under normal circumstances, although this year has been slightly more challenging for some of our new wineries, but we've had to sort of create some innovative ways of looking at videos and pictures. And, and also a bit, as Anna said, just looking at what literature is published by the wineries themselves on what their sustainability credentials are. And, and obviously in this case, we're talking about ethical. So what is their social and ethical policy? Um, and we look at that very very closely before we'll take someone on and that will be also part of a tender process if we do a tender process so we have several as Anna referred to them gateways by which you have to go through to become a supplier to Marks and Spencers I mean I'm sure this isn't unique in the sense that I'm sure other winery other retailers in the UK probably follow something similar I think perhaps where we're a little bit more Unique is that we will visit our wineries and we will visit the wineries um, every year under normal circumstances. And we will ra raise these questions as well as do all of the, the technical and blending such of stuff that we're doing when we're there. So I think, you know, again, it's a, having a dialogue with our wineries that's really important. I mean, we also look at what other incidents are happening um, around the wine trade um, you know where, where are there violations of human rights and and one of the things that we we have seen a lot more of unfortunately recently not hopefully within our supply chain although you know we, we can't be 100% certain is that uh, modern day slavery there are incidences of this um, you know not in perhaps countries where there were traditionally thought to be such as um, South Africa or <coughs> South America but we're certainly seeing it in some of the um, European countries so I think we need to have those conversations those robust conversations with our suppliers with wineries um, and obviously the one of the big uh, pinch points will be at harvest where migrant labour is you know has traditionally been used and it has traditionally been very well controlled I suspect there are more you know there's a bigger pool for people to draw from now shall we say um, if that's the correct way of putting it um, so yes and, and the other thing as I say we, we would definitely support in individual countries um, where there are standards such as South Africa where there's WITA, which is a, an ethical audit carried out on, on wineries, and we would definitely require our South African suppliers to have that. 
Um, and again, we, we ask, it's all uploaded onto a website we have. So we've got a you know, copy of the certification, etc. And we're also looking at this other thing I mentioned in the um, previous session, which is, sorry, it's so new, I really need to look a bit more about it. It's um, called Stronger Together, which is this multi-stakeholder initiative, which is particularly looking to reduce modern day slavery. So as a business, we're very much involved in, in developing that. Um, so I, I say, I think I'm really just going to echo what Anna said, is you've got to start having those conversations. And as, as wineries and businesses generally have got to have an ethical policy because until you have that, you don't know really what you're following. And I, I think maybe slightly against what Anna said, I think it should be fairly straightforward to have a global policy because there are very strict criteria set out by the UN. You know, a lot of the things are similar across the globe. It's not, as you say, like with the environment where you have different challenges. I mean, basic human rights should be the same everywhere. So I think we should be able to get to that point of having a, a very robust global standard. So just to come in here, I know that uh, Zachary is yet to, I was actually saying the same thing as you. I was saying yeah. that I think it will be complicated for environmental. Oh, okay, sorry, apologies. Be, no, no, that's fine. But it should be, I think it should be relatively uh, straightforward, like you say, for social because of those standards and because there isn't this climatic variation. Yeah. Or for, for social, obviously, for the region. Sorry. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sue. Um, lots to talk about there. Um, and we're going to have some time for questions. So if you have questions, do put them in the chat box. And once we've heard from Zachary about his experience, we'll, we'll come back to some of the points made and have some questions. But let me turn to you now, Zachary. I'd love to hear about your experience on, uh, on improving worker rights and working on social issues in, in Southern Africa. Welcome. Thank you, Tobias. Um, yeah, uh, when you look at our work, uh, particularly in South Africa, uh, as fair trade, of course, our entry point is our standards, the fair trade standards, which cover both uh, the small scale farmers and also the commercial farmers who depend entirely on hired labor to carry out their operations. So our entry point, as far as uh, uh, sustainability is concerned and uh, addressing the social issues uh, is through our standards, which have a minimum entry requirement for, uh, for new certified companies. And over the years, as they progress within the fair trade system, they are expected to demonstrate improvement. For example, uh, as an entry requirement would be uh, complying with the national laws of the land maybe complying with the laws of South Africa as far as employment uh, con uh, conditions are concerned, health and safety. But in the next cycle of the audit, there will be more, uh, there will be more focus now on what improvements has that company made uh, as far as those topics are concerned. Followed closely with, uh, by the standards is our approach through either projects uh, where we come up with projects particularly targeting uh, certain uh, thematic issues. For example, uh, the topic of forced labor within the commercial farms or in the agricultural sector. Uh, it could be a topic on living wage, which we have uh, 
been very active with in South Africa. Uh, we were able to set up a living wage benchmark way back in 2013, 2012-2013, particularly focusing on the Western Cape, uh, where we came up with a benchmark and we encouraged the producers or the commercial farmers to work towards uh, closing the gap between our findings and what they are actually paying. Of course, there are various dynamics that come into play. Uh, I remember in 2013, the South African government, I think, uh, increased salaries by 50% across the board. Uh, the minimum wages were increased by 50%. So we have to work out and see whether the, our, our living wage benchmark that we researched in the Western Cape province, uh, how do, does it measure with the minimum wage as uh, advertised or as enforced by the government. So those are some of the two key interventions or two approaches that we use. Uh, but that's not all. On the market side, with our national fair trade organizations in Europe, uh, there's a lot, they do a lot of campaigns uh, on the topics, on forced labor, on child labor, and also the system as a whole, uh, fair trade, the fair trade system believes we are also influencers of business because we set minimum prices and we also uh, come up or we set up fair trade premium money that is supposed to be used by the workers or the farmers. So we also, uh, as an organization, do our own due diligence and uh, we have come up with the very robust policies and procedures, uh, and the drive is towards remediation if there are any violations that are found in our in all our in all in any or all of our operations. So, basically, that is the approach. Thank you, um, and of course, the South African government has made some significant policy changes on on alcohol this year, which have caused all sorts of challenges for the wine industry. Do you, do you see significant social regulation incentive changes post-COVID in, in terms of uh, workers? Do you see the political environment uh, enabling workers' rights more? Or, or what do you think the situation looks like going forward? Uh, going forward, I think there's a lot of work and we, because of the effects post-COVID-19. Uh, with the total lockdown of the country, and the regulations banning any sale or export of wine, we saw the almost the total collapse of the industry uh, with massive layoffs of workers, um, business losses, massive business losses. And going forward, we, 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 are, we want to be involved, we want to be in the conversations uh, regarding how do we revitalize the industry and for us, of course, our target being the uh, Fiat certified commercial farms. Uh, we also want to, we have had, and there have been announcements that there's a special uh, revitalization fund from the government, I think uh, around 12 million rand that is coming into play. We want to be involved in the conversations. But I agree with you, there are huge implications because also when you look at the sector, even before COVID-19, we had challenges, for example, casualization of labor, uh, where some of the companies would uh, rely 
on outsourcing uh, arrangement for workers in an effort not to have permanent workers who would end up uh, uh, eating more into the profit margins of the company. That's one thing. The second thing would be out of that kind of arrangement, we saw uh, a lot of migrant workers crossing over either from Zimbabwe or Namibia or the other surrounding countries, and they are not documented. That has a, had a huge impact in terms of uh, wages, uh, where you find some of them are ready to accept uh, very low wages, basically to survive and see the end of the day. The situation does not improve when you look at the trade union landscape, where we have so many trade unions, uh, all fighting or jostling for the same space. And there's a kind of disillusionment by the workers towards getting affiliated with any of the trade unions. So in as much as we want to work a lot with the trade unions, sometimes we get lost and wonder which trade union are we going to work with, which trade union is accepted by the workers. So Tobias, you are right, there's still a lot of work on the ground. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Sue, let me come back to you for, for a moment. Um, obviously, MS has done lots of social reporting for a long time, and you've mm. been a pioneer of South African wine and sold fair trade. What sort of interest is there from, from your customers in knowing more about what's happening there? What's the sort of level of interest in, in what's been going on? Perhaps has that been accelerated this year? Um, we do get requests for information. I think because of our website, probably a lot of people end up going there. I think it's just been a very unusual time at the moment. And I would not be telling the truth if I said we'd had you know, thousands of people asking about South African wine. I think there is this, this acceptance by customers that we're doing the right thing. Now, you know, I think we should perhaps try to raise that profile more. And certainly we have, a, you know, a successful range of fair trade wines. So, you know, people are buying into our fair trade wines. There's no doubt about that. But we try to, if we have a, another sustainable or ethical story, so for example, we have one wine which is um, from the winery of Good Hope where they have an education trust and a certain amount of money for every bottle we sell goes to that education trust for their work, their children, the work, the workers' children. So um, I, th I think customers are very keen that it is done. I'm not sure how much how much customers are actually asking. Am I saying that the right way around? I think they just accept that if, if it says fair trade, if it says we're doing you know, this, then we are. And so I think it's important to have, but you know, I, I think it should be genuine things that we have and not just for a marketing purpose. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, they sort of trust M&S to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, um, Anna, for, for company, for those watching, uh, listening to this, who might find the whole topic a bit daunting, where, where are the examples you'd suggest that, that they look at or, or benchmarks or frameworks or, or companies? I mean, we talked in the preparation uh, about Santa Rita, who you've, you've looked at, and we, we're talking with them later on about, uh, about the issues that they're, uh, they're tackling successfully in, in um, Latin America. What would your advice be as to sort of where to start and examples to look at for, for those taking part here? Well, where to start? Uh, I would say um, one of the first things to be aware of is that social is a sensitive issue. Uh, so it, 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 
has it, it is highly sensitive so for instance if you're recycling or not recycling some people might be very sensitive to that but if you're dealing with social issues you're talking about things like culture religion race discrimination very sensitive bullying uh, very sensitive topics so just start with the concept that you're dealing with something that is going to be sensitive approach it sensitively when you're putting in the new policies make sure that there's a proper sort of change management aspect that is that is connected to this. I was going to say, actually, it's quite fascinating to me that um, the Modern Slavery Act, when I was first looking at this with my colleagues in Kenya, they were uh, we were going through the, what's part of the Modern Slavery Act, how many hours a person is allowed to work per week, and if they go above that time, time frame, then it's considered slavery. Um, is an imposition to work over, over a particular number of hours. And I was asking, well, what about management? And uh, the Modern Slavery Act doesn't cover any <laughs> management. So management can work as long as, uh, it's assumed that management should work as long like slaves, <laughs> as long as they like. I thought that was quite a funny one. But uh, the, the thing is that, that there are so many different areas to this other than just child labor or you know, the workers on the ground. There is also an aspect of culture, which plays a very important role on the social side. So you can put the policies in place using the SDGs as a framework that can be a very useful framework tool, um, and then look at how, um, how you're covering those, those aspects in, in the organization, and then look at exactly how they, they work within the organization. So for instance, if you were to put in uh, a policy to empower women, let's say, we, uh, just touch on gender for a second, that, that may, may sound very nice at the head office, it's a very nice policy when you, when you put that in place and you know, your customers would like it. But in practice, whenever you change anything within the community, whether it's a gender or a race issue or a religious issue, it will affect the whole community. And I think that's very important to think about. When, you, when there is a specific program in place, think about how it will affect the whole community, not just a part of the community, like for instance, um, uh, women in the community, because everything that you change there will impact everybody. And how can you track that? Well, one of the ways that we used to do it, you, you may not know the impact that, that that will have on the community, but you can pro put processes in place to track how it's actually going. So when you put a social program in place, make sure you're tracking how it's progressing through various means of surveys, getting working groups in place. And on the topic of working groups, uh, to, your, to your question, Toby, I think it's um, in order to start any sustainability program, uh, you'd be amazed if, if you don't have one yet, you'd be amazed how many people would would volunteer to be a champion in this area. So, so for instance, in one of our operations in the UK, uh, one of the directors created a sustainability working group and the sustainability working group was run by someone who was elected by the, by the community of the, of, the, uh, of the operation. And that happened organically. That person was re-elected or a new person was elected and people put themselves forward. You can often find for sustainability these champions inside the organization. And oftentimes it's not the person you expect. And there are some people who are just very good with people. They want to help people. They want to promote social action get those people involved. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is that if you're putting in, uh, if you're looking at sustainability and you're thinking, okay, now let's look at social, just be prepared that there might be some ethical questions that will come up. Like for instance, if you're going to, I think this came up earlier on in, the, in one of the sessions in the morning, if you're going to um, bottle 
in the market instead of bottling at source. Mm. That will take jobs away from, from mm. for instance, one of the decisions we made is we wanted to bottle at, at the winery because we didn't want to take jobs away from the local community. And that was an ethical decision that we made. We looked at the environmental impact. We, look, we looked at the social impact on the ground and because it was South Africa and because we wanted to promote those jobs in the community, and that was important for us, that was an ethical decision that we made. So just be prepared that you would have to sometimes make make some compromises and make those ethical decisions. And, and, and oftentimes it's best to make them together as a team uh, and, um, and, and, and they, will, they will cross over between environmental and social. Those things do not exist in silos. It's important to remember that. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, as you know, we, through my other business, I work on Innovation Forum. We do a lot of work with smallholder farmers in other commodities. And it's amazing how much of the resources and literature goes into a very narrow approach. And actually, if you want to help smallholder farmers, you have to build sustainable rural communities, which involves building a rural economic ecosystem, um, which helps people stay out of the city. So these things are all very much interconnected. Um, Zachary, let me ask you about um, worker voices. You know, in other areas of agriculture, we see worker voices being highlighted by companies so that the customers get a sense of what it's like to work on the ground. For example, um, Albert Hein, the Dutch supermarket, works with blockchain to show their customers what the orange juice supply chain for Brazil looks like. And they were amazed at how much the Brazilian workers were so happy to see the other way up the supply chain, to see that their oranges were appreciated by Dutch consumers. It was actually turned out to be a real two-way street using blockchain. Do you see an opportunity for, for wine businesses to do more to highlight worker voices, to, to really bring the, the experience to life and, and what they're doing? I agree with you, Toby. And you bring in the topic of blockchains. Uh, we have just finished our planning sessions for the new uh, for the year 2021, and my colleagues in the southern uh, in South Africa actually came up with the topic of blockchains, and this is one thing that we want to explore going forward. The next topic or the next intervention that we are thinking of in 2021 is how do we profile. Uh, the premium used or the premium generated and that reaches the workers, how do we profile the farms that are receiving the same premium so that they can tell the sto their story uh, to the customers and so that the customer also gains the confidence and knows that despite the fact that I bought this wine that is fair trade, that could be more expensive than the ordinary wine, the money is getting to the intended recipients and it's making a difference. That's the second approach we want to take uh, going forward. The third approach, and this uh, I think would be related to what Anna is saying, as far as uh, involving the communities in our work, particularly addressing social issues. We have come, there, there's, I would call it a model or a system that Fairtrade has developed and has piloted in other uh, product, uh, production, let's say sugarcane in Belize. Uh, and we have called it the youth-inclusive youth community-based monitoring and remediation uh, system, uh, where we believe 
it should be a bottoms up approach as far as we are working on uh, uh, indicators and uh, correcting anything to do with forced labor or child labor we need to talk to the communities we need to encourage them to develop their own indicators and their their own solutions we have seen it work in cane production uh, in belize and also in vanilla production in madagascar so those are some of the interventions that we are thinking of going forward i hope i have answered your question Thank you. Yes, very useful. Um, let me ask you a question about cooperatives. One of the criticisms of cooperatives is that they're quite opaque and it's quite hard to know where the money goes, to your earlier point, and therefore quite, quite difficult to know whether you're just giving cash to the chiefs, you know, or whether it gets down to the ground. Um, and I wonder, is there a need for cooperatives to recognise the value of transparency so they can feed those stories back up the supply chain? Exactly. And um, we... We, we got this feedback over the years that as fair trade, you are very tough with the commercial firms. Your standards on hired labor are very tough, but when you move over to the small-scale farm organizations, your standards are very lenient. And uh, the downside of that is that, as you rightly point out, the topic of governance is watered down. The transparency aspect of uh, managing the money or the premium or even running the cooperative uh, does not feature at all. So out of that, we revised the small scale farmer standards this year. The new version is out and it's more stringent on governance for the small scale farmer organizations. And we will start auditing against the state starting next year. So it's true that is always a huge topic and people want to see where their money is going and that aspect of transparency has to be uh, addressed, including for small-scale farmers uh, under governance, the topic of succession. You find the same guys uh, running a cooperative for five, ten years since you started working with them. And tied to that would also be the topic of inclusiveness of uh, youth, women, and uh, maybe the disadvantaged in society within those cooperatives. So as a first step, we have tightened the standards. We are making them more stringent across the board, including governance and also including uh, the aspect of premium money management. Thank you, Toby. Thank you. I mean, it seems like there are some great stories to tell where there are successes. But equally, there is a risk, isn't there, in not, not managing these issues and, and, and not reporting on them transparently. Um, Anna, I, I don't know if you followed the, the controversy this year of uh, Valentina Passalacqua in uh, southern Italy, in Puglia, whose father is a sort of agricultural magnate, and she was dragged into this ethical quagmire. And commercially, seems to have been quite a painful a very fast reaction from the industry. And it's been quite controversial as to the level of her involvement. But I think that just goes to show um, these issues can kind of come out of nowhere, can't they? And they can have a serious commercial impact on and even a relatively small producer. Absolutely. Actually, that's a very good point that you that you made in Zachary as well about smallholder farmers. Mm -hmm. uh, this is definitely something that touches other commodities in a big way. Like, for instance, I think I was reading some data recently 70% of all teas from smallholder farmers or something like that. It's a very high percentage. And actually, you have uh, low visibility over many things in the smallholder farmer community. And one of the biggest dangers there 
is that that visibility can lead to missing something crucial like modern slavery violations. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, a smallholder that is relatively mature can take over several pieces of land, then move to the city, and actually the people working there could be slaves. And the person buying that wine or that commodity would have no visibility of that, no idea. And actually training, any training that goes on into lower applications of chemicals and best practice in water use can get lost literally in translation because the people really working on the land are not the ones you think you're speaking to. And these kinds of things, if they get out into the media, if if an organization is ever linked to slavery in this way, it has a really big impact. Now, it has a big impact on, uh, it could get into the media, could have a big impact on what people think of that organization. But it will, if it's a larger organization or if its clients are larger organizations like Marks and Spencer's, for instance, then that will impact directly on your bottom line because suddenly no one wants to work with you. And maybe even your share price crashes, your shareholders don't want to invest in you. So it can spiral out of control very quickly. And I think this is a really, um, the smallholder farmers and, and cooperatives really need to be aware of this. And I think transparency is the way, but how can we as an industry support some best practice on understanding who's working on that land how that land is being managed and who's actually held responsible. Is it the buyer? Is it the cooperative? Uh, is it the local government? And, and, and that's, that's, that's very tricky. So the other thing I wanted to say is that uh, social, because it's so highly relatable, uh, it, is, uh, it, it is very impactful. So even though it, we've talked about the high risk of something, of something bad happening, something bad getting out, and yes, investors and, and the commercial community, the value chain can get very interested in that and it can impact your business. But there is also an opportunity here. I, I just want to really stress that because we haven't really, uh, I think in the previous session, it was very interesting to hear the Nordics say that they're looking at the risks. They want to make sure that they eliminate uh, the risks in the, in the value chain on the social side. And they're also engaging with those areas where they think there are high risks. But there are also opportunities here for those companies that really that, that really want to shine. They can future-proof their businesses. They can write their policies out, communicate about them, uh, and show the way as well to their local communities of how things can be done. So I think, I think that's another thing that we really need to not forget here, that good culture and good social practice is a real opportunity because it has, everyone knows when you go to work and you're excited to go to work because you like your boss, you like your colleagues, you like what people are doing, the company stands for something, then you just work that much harder. In fact, I was reading um, uh, an interesting uh, assessment the other day of, uh, there was this case study of a charity. And what they did is they split the charity workers into two groups. And they showed the first group, the impact that their work had on the company. The second group was shown the impact that their work had on the people that they were working for, for the charity, the, the help that the charity was was doing in this in the community and actually the numbers that they achieved at the end of the year were astronomically higher for those people who were working and understood the impact that the charity had on the broader community so it just shows that having a purpose in the company can really elevate how people work how they how hard they work how much they feel they want to work for you and can get the company the best resources of skills so this is a really an interesting area to invest in if you're a company. Social is, 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 is a big opportunity as well as a risk. 
That's a very good point. I mean, for, for the last 30 years or so, sort of social audits have all been about carrying a big stick and wagging a finger and having a checklist and telling suppliers, these are the things you must not do. And my favourite story of the lunacy of this was um, an Asian uh, factory, I think it was in the Philippines or Vietnam, where they, they were audited 27 times in one year to 32 different standards. And they ended up having the fire extinguishers on sliders on the wall. And then there was a, you could see where they wrote Nike at the bottom and Gap <laughs> at the top and Adidas up here. And when the different auditors turned out, they just moved the fire extinguishers three inches up to meet the audit requirements. And it completely ludicrous. And of course, the factory had to pay for the audit every time, except when the Scandinavians are doing it because they actually cover the cost of audits. No one else does. So for too long, it's been about the stick rather than the carrot. And I wonder, Sue, what your thoughts are on how we can tell the stories better, to Anna's point, so it becomes more about the carrot. You know, could you be doing more with fair trade to tell the story of success on the ground? And, and how, might, how might you do that? Well, I, I do like uh, Zachary's um, point about fair trade are going to try to communicate more as an organisation to the customer about where the money goes, because I think that will have a huge impact. And if there's a way as a retailer, we can link into that, that hopefully will encourage more people to sign up to fair trade because they, that one of the things that does come back to us in South Africa is that well, we don't want to do that, but we're doing this because fair trade is so expensive. So I think there is a, you know, to, to try and kind of square the circle a bit more or to try and sort of say, but yes, there is a cost, but actually these are the benefits that you, you can really physically see. So the consumer can understand if they have to pay 10p more, this is where that 10p is going or 50p more, whatever it is. So I think communication is really, really important. Um, the part about um, bringing small companies on board, I think is really crucial because as we said earlier, we need to be joined up as an industry. So how we make sure cooperatives are on board with that, I think this almost does, you know, I'm probably dodging the question a bit, it does come back to having a standard, a unified standard that we can say to people, this is where you're aiming to get to, and this is going to be your journey. How, how you know, and how can we help you? We have these tools and resources. So, you know, this is available we can point you in the right direction. But at the end of the day, the wineries have to have that will, that, that desire to do this. Because we, if you have a stick, exactly what you've just said, they'll do it while you're there, but they won't continue to do it. So I think it is, you know, I mean, as I say, because we take on, hopefully take on people who meet our criteria, um, it's not something we have come across, but actually what I would be more keen to do, and I know as an organisation we are, is to bring everyone on board. So almost, you know, that you, you don't have to ask that question anymore because everyone is to a certain standard. So I think it's as, a, as an industry, how do we join up to encourage everyone to work to those standards rather than beating them up? Or, or as some people do, just send out a piece of paper, sign this and say, you've got an ethical policy. <laughs> which is not what we do, but that might happen elsewhere. And we want people to be doing it because, as Anna says, they recognise the benefits of having a good social policy because people will work that much better. Um, and that was always the, the Marks and Spencer's philosophy, um, that you know, our, 
um, initial founders work to. If you treated your staff well, then they would repay you in dividends because you know they would want to work for you. Thank you. Uh, very good point. Um, do we have any further questions from the audience? Uh, you've been a bit quiet in this session. Um, I've only seen a couple of points which we've tried to address in the chat function. We have a few minutes left. Um, if I don't see any further questions, I think what I'll do is ask our, our panel to, to offer perhaps some, some takeaways. It's always hard to remember everything that's said in these sessions, and we are recording them, but I doubt most of you are going to have time to go back and review every session afterwards. So if I don't see any further questions, what I might ask our panel to do is just offer some closing thoughts on sort of what the takeaways from this session would be in terms of practical advice for those of you on here who want to improve social impacts in the supply chain. Um, Zachary, let me start with you. What would your advice be to our audience to, to move things onwards in their own organizations? Yeah, thank you, Tobias. Um, from fair trade, I think we admit we are working hard to sort out uh, sustainability issues and social compliance. But we also admit we are not yet there. So, for example, I've seen a question on how are we communicating to the consumers uh, about the good things that the farmers are doing and the workers, how is the premium getting down to the workers. We are welcome to suggestions on improvement, for example, on communication, uh, telling the story, making the connection, and also profiling the good work that uh, the certified farms are doing. So before I sign off, at the same time, I know we are all consumers. Let's also buy fair trade so that we are also able to, <laughs> uh, to contribute to the sustainability of the industry. Thank you very much. Thank you, Zachary. What would your takeaways be, Sue? What's your... Um, if you want people to remember just a few points from this session, what would they be? Uh, okay, well, um, the first one would be if people are, who don't currently supply us are keen to supply us, I would encourage them to look at our website because I think there's a lot of good material on there. I'm sure Anna will perhaps point people to um, good resources as well. I think it's, I would encourage everyone to take that first step to make sure that they have a good social policy and accept that it won't perhaps be completely right at the beginning or watertight and there will be some difficult issues but at least have um, this terrible word people use a roadmap of where they are now and where they want to get to because until you take that first step you're never going to get anywhere so that would be my my summary thank you sue anna in closing what would you what would you say I would uh, just offer one more uh, small piece of practical advice as well that often gets overlooked actually, which is that now because there are more and more interested parties and because social is so highly relatable, uh, the large supermarkets, retailers, your customers are often keen to find out what you're doing. And if, you're, if you want to launch a particular project and especially if it's social because it's so highly relatable to the consumer, they might be willing to launch a joint project with you. So if you're a winery and you want to do something, okay, reach out to your supply chain and ask them, reach out to your community. Do you want to support us in this? And you will often be surprised by how many suppliers, clients are keen to put funds forward to run these projects. And of course, that's great commercially as well, because then you've got something in place for the long term or the medium term together. 
and you're working on something together, you get to know your clients and your value chain a lot better. So I would just say for social, because it's so highly relatable, use it to your advantage, make, make the people in your, in your workspace, in your community, more look, better looked after, look after their wellness, but also you can, you can leverage that to get to know your clients, value chain, empower the people through the value chain as well to send this important message to, to everyone, not just the producer. Thank you very much, Anna. Thank you, Zachary, and thank you, Sue. Really interesting insights in the last hour or so. We're going to finish a couple of minutes early, but we have a half an hour break now, and then we are going to have a plenary session on sustainability and operations and logistics. We've put the link in the chat function. It's also in the PDF agenda that you have. So just click on the link in uh, about 30 minutes and you'll be able to join Richard Bamfield uh, and some really interesting speakers to talk about sustainable logistics, which is an, a, clearly a very important topic. In the meantime, thank you all so much uh, for taking part and we'll see you back in the main room in 30 minutes. Thanks again.